0: This week's episode is brought to you by Screencastify. Millions of people use Screencastify to record, edit, and share videos. Visit Screencastify.com to see what all the hype is about and start your free account today. That's Screencastify.com. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast. Each week, we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, the managing editor here at Ed Surge. We're an award-winning nonprofit newsroom. The typical way to think about higher education is kind of a straight line that leads from high school to college to a job. But for so many college students, actually I think it's technically the majority of them, what actually happens is far messier and more sporadic. Life happens. Studies get interrupted by maybe the birth of a child or a parent falling ill. Some training might happen through a job. Or maybe the student ends up back on a campus or in an online program. Or maybe they find some other way to get the learning they need. Our guest today has been exploring what he calls the educational underground, the experimental programs and hidden credentials that people get that aren't on this straight line of college. That guest is Peter Smith, and he has advocated for new models of adult learning for more than 50 years. He's been the founder of an experimental college, the Community College of Vermont, And he has held major political offices, including lieutenant governor of Vermont and later a U.S. congressman from that state. Though he felt he knew the data around education policy, he wanted to better understand the lived experiences of adult learners. So over the last two years, he conducted extensive interviews with 20 students who did not fit in the traditional education system. And he says the research surprised him, even changed him. The result is Smith's new book, Stories from the Educational Underground, The New Frontier for Learning and Work. I sat down with Smith last week at the ASU GSV Summit. That's a conference for education innovation. It took place in San Diego. And yeah, this was in person. It was actually my first in-person conference I've been to in more than a year. And you're going to hear a bit of buzz in the background of people walking around. It felt very novel to be among people. I started by asking how he got started on this book project. Uh, And it just sort of came together about two years ago. I had
1: written 50 blogs about just practices becoming best practices in higher education, that, that this isn't just about pedagogy, it's about people's lives and there is a justice element that we weren't addressing as a justice element. And that led me, that sort of gave me an angle into this where I could uh, then identify and talk to 20 some odd people who, by circumstances of birth, had um, not been able to uh, benefit from the system um, in most cases. A couple did through, but their stories are so tortured anyway that it, it makes the same point. And so that sort of opened the door for me. I think the other part that was I think has helped make the book is that about halfway through I'd completed the interviews and I was editing them and all of that and all of a sudden I thought my god Peter you're an icon of white privilege in a largely unerased society and what right do you have to be doing this uh with your Andover Princeton Harvard background and i went to my wife and i who's an educator as well and i said honey i got a big problem and i told her and she looked out the window and she thought about it for a minute and she said interview yourself as a counterpoint uh, as, what is it like when the road is to opportunity is paved and there are off ramps there are people to help you up when you fall down and there are networks of influence and so interview yourself so i did and so chapter 1 uh, or section 1 is my story And looking at my life through the lens, having already interviewed these 20 people, it was, uh, I say it was hilarious, but what it was, um, was very instructive. Because there has not been a time in my life when I, as I put it, I've lost some doozy fights in my life. Um, But I picked every one of them. I chose those fights. And these people are losing fights every day that they never asked for, and to me, that is the closest way I can sum it up. So it was, it became a very personal, very personal learning journey for me as well. What are some key themes that emerged in the
0: students you interviewed?
1: There are some that are, I guess, I would say, I knew the data up in my head, but I didn't know it in my heart. The the story, um, race, gender, sexual preference income and many times those things are interrelated special conditions adhd you know etc play a disproportionate negative role in determining who gets access to opportunity through education the traditional way so that didn't surprise me as a fact but the, the power of the stories. So you, data can be cold and hard. You know, oh yeah, okay, two plus two equals four. But when you get the real story, um, it it's just very powerful. Now, the flip side of it was, as I was interviewing myself, I noticed that, as I said, pe- you get the benefit of the doubt. People pick you up when you fall down. You are mentored all the time by people you know and trust. Um, There are networks of relationships which add up to privilege because it gets you talking to the right people at the right time for a job or whatever it might be. And what I found in each of the interviews, a little different, but when these men and women finally turned their their life and got the opportunity that they deserved all along one or more of those things happened in other words when one or more of those things became present in their life someone at work um, one guy who was in jail and he got out and his daughter said to him if you go back to jail I'm never going to talk to you again so that was a different kind but a transition point turning point for him and then later on he found a person who networked him to the job that he currently has in an educational institution. Um, so, you, But what, you, what I saw was that when those things were present or began to happen for any one of these people, um, where they could have an aha moment, a turning point and start a transition and know what to do and how to get through that transition to something better for the first time in their lives in most cases, that's what turned them around, uh, allowed them to turn themselves around. So I think that was the big aha moment. We spend so much time on curriculum and all that. Yeah, that's important. But it was these very human connections and realities um, that that affected them. And I had them baked into my pie from day one and they did not. But when they got access, when that happened, their natural talent took over and they, and the other thing is the talent and the intelligence walking around in this country that we do not that we ignore uh is a national disaster and it's a disgrace
0: can you give me another a, another example because i i know that these are powerful stories um is there a moment that kind of epitomizes some of some of what you're talking about here as far as um you know kind of lack of privilege by some groups,
1: boy, um, there are um, there are so many. But I think um, the, a, one that just leaps to my mind um, is a guy who was working at McDonald's, and he was smart, and he knew he was smart, but he could never get to college. He just it was not in the cards. He couldn't afford it. His parents didn't go. Blah blah blah, and he. Realized that two people were sitting there eating that were that were Officers in the regional McDonald's and he went and he sat down with them and he said I really want to get an education I want to commit my life and He said Then they said all oh, that and they wrote everything down and then a month later. He hadn't heard from them so He then said, then I just, then I just said I was going to do it for myself. And what happened is he went to his immediate supervisor and said, "Uh, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to apply to the archways program. And she said, terrific, you've got what it takes. And she advocated for him and he got in the archways program. Now he's got his master's degree and he's, you know, running, He's managing 20 McDonald's in Northern California and Southern Oregon and Eastern Idaho, uh, Western Idaho. But it, for him, it sounds a little weird. But the guys who should have said, yeah. But then he said, I'm not going to let this go. And he mentioned it to the person he knew best. And she helped him make it happen.
0: So different than your story, it's like in your story, it just took the one person or maybe even you didn't ask. And somebody said, here. Oh, well. In my, I mean, the first one,
1: I'll tell you, uh, in the ninth grade in Burlington, Vermont, junior high school, uh, I'm flunking algebra. And 35 years later, I found out I was severely ADHD, but nobody knew what ADHD was in 1960, Uh, or, you know, what I mean. My father's solution was to repeat the ninth grade at Andover, Phillips Academy, Andover, one of the better prep schools, if some say the best in the country. That's a pretty good solution, um, you know. And four years later, uh, I went to Princeton, and graduated four years later magna cum laude, and I went to Harvard and got a degree in uh, in the Ed School, and, and I started a college when I was twenty-four. None of that would have happened if I hadn't been bailed out in the ninth grade, and. Gotten to schools where they were going to take care of you. I mean in that at Andover what, I mean, you know They were gonna roll with the punches and help you succeed Minimally in my case when it came to mathematics and sciences uh, Which I didn't know for 35 years is because I couldn't remember anything And so that was a bit of a problem with algebra too. But but that's I mean uh, just example after example uh, like that where uh, a beautiful alternative uh, rolled out um, without my even hitting the without the problem even in that case happening to me, and my own my dad had figured out a solution, and you know it's and I call that part getting in my professional career. I mean I've stood for a lot of stuff, but I and I've lost some fights, but I picked them all, I chose them, um, and I never. You know, I just never thought about it from the point of view of what happens when you hit the wall and there's nobody there to help you. It had never occurred to me, I'm embarrassed to say, at the level I mean I had it as I said, I had it in my brain, but I didn't have it in my heart. And that's what these twenty stories did for me.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask actually, isn't isn't the isn't the surprise not that people without resources struggle, but that people like and, you know, I'm sure I should count myself in this as well, like that other that people that have privilege um, don't realize it as much.
1: You know what I mean? I think you're dead right. And and I think the thing that uh, really affected me was uh, understanding at a, at a human level that. Um, things that I had understood rationally to be privileged. I mean, I've understood white supremacy. I've understood racism. I I understand them as facts of life. But I I had never walked down the road with 20 people for whom they were a lived fact of life. And what I saw, I think it's a social justice issue now. I mean, I I think the work we're doing here, all the people here at ASUGSV, their work is going to make a stronger country socially civically economically humanly because this work will respect more people more different types of learning more different life stories um, and and if we don't do that i think we're we're challenged as a country going forward i think so so to me it was and the other thing is i think the pandemic brought us all to an inflection point in terms of seeing something we knew exist we say thank you to the cash register lady in the store we say you know thank you to the cop but the the whole frontline providers whether they're doctors or nurses or secretaries and housing insecurity food insecurity health insecurity it's all it, I think it I think we got it right in the face and I know I did and um, I think I'm hopeful that coming out of the pandemic, when we come out of it, that we will be in a different place in terms of understanding that education is a critical part of the pathway to economic, social, civic satisfaction, success, defined the way an individual wants to define it. I mean, there isn't, you know, I was raised with a particular idea of success, Happily, I didn't pursue that path uh, because I was stubborn and decided to go into education. But, uh, you know, yes, the answer is it's it's I think we're in a very I'm not sure what the play out will be as a recovering politician. I can say, holy mackerel. But I think I really think the notion that we as a society, let alone a functioning democracy, are weakened when we
0: ignore people and their talents. After the break, we talk about recent announcements by Target and other large-scale employers to offer education benefits to their staffs. Do those do enough? Stay with us. This week's episode is brought to you by Screencastify. Screencastify is easy to use for teachers at any skill level and students at any age. It was developed by a team of former teachers and administrators so they know how to deliver the best tools and support for educators at every level. Visit Screencastify.com to see why Screencastify is the go-to video solution in more than 70% of U.S. school districts. That's Screencastify.com. Now back to the episode. There's been a lot of talk at this event and in the news lately about um, employers, big employers like Target and Walmart you know, increasing the educational benefits to their employees, and um, I'm curious, though, whether you feel like that approach is adequate, or you know, what? How does that does that solve um, the issue at hand, or how how do you see that fitting in, or how do you you rate that kind of idea?
1: Jeff, that's a great that's a great question. <clears throat> I think it's a part of a mosaic. I don't think it is sufficient. I think it is though, to have employers change their attitude about the whole issue of workforce development so dramatically in 10 years. I mean, this is very new. And what my word for it or way of understanding it is that they used to say, well, why train someone if they're just going to leave? Now they understand that, one, they'll identify talent they already have and they can promote that talent too. their workforces are happier and more productive. Even if they do leave, they're going to get more positive out of them uh, during the time they're, with, they're together because they've treated them with respect and all of that. So that's an important part. And it changes the politics, I think, because with with the major business organizations saying, no, 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 you know, Politicians are going to not think it's important. Having said that, I think if I could shake, uh, you know, wave my wand, instead of doubling Pell, I would double Pell, but I would call it a lifelong learning account, and it would be adjusted to need against a scale based on your previous year's tax filing. Um, And you could use it all the first four years out of high school, or you could use it uh, whenever you needed it. Uh, That would be very problematic for a lot of colleges uh, who count on Pell and and loans. Um, But I I think we do need a very, and I think accreditation is gonna change, Um, the understanding of certification, the, the notion that the brand of higher education is associate and baccalaureate and master's degrees I very well. I think we could very easily see within the next ten to fifteen years so many parallel paths that are equally well branded, uh, and people know uh, serve them. I think we're going to understand learning differently. Um, uh, if, if I mean, I, I one of my examples in the book. Why is it that I can take Spanish in a college and get a Pell Grant? But I can't take English as a second language because I'm considered deficient if I if I'm not capable enough in English. That's outrageous, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and and the notion that is all philosophy Western European uh, or American. I mean, do you think there's African philosophy? Do you think? And we we've got to make room both in terms of content and. And are we just teaching content or are we helping people learn critical thinking, problem solving, working on teams, uh, recognizing diversity? Are we are we teaching? Are we teaching those things, too? And if you don't elicit those things, if you don't respect them in people, you can't teach them either. In other words, it goes both ways. So I think there's going to be big changes. uh, But I think having the corporate having the United States Chamber of Commerce, you know, and the tax laws can change. This is money well spent, money well spent on talent that we can't we can't survive without it. I don't think
0: there's so much that in in the story, it, it seems like one of the challenges of a solution is how lifelong it all is. Right. It's not all going right out of high school to a, a higher ed or some training that's going to make a difference in someone's life as to their career and, and well-being for their whole for, for, for their whole lives, and so how it seems like it seems like it is challenging to me. I can I can definitely you know I hear some worry that some of these workforce programs maybe they're only online programs and maybe somebody would be better off um, in an in an in person. Maybe it's um, guiding people into certain jobs where that might not be a fit or they might be more uh, served elsewhere. But again, I'm I'm not trying to crit. It's more just like. Aren't there other pieces that are necessary, and what are some other ways that um, that you see um, to, to address some of the bigger systemic issues?
1: I think the big challenge that faces us all is what I call developing a, a GPS for learning and work. Um, and the notion that there is an algorithmically driven dynamic um, space where I can put in... Uh, without any censorship, where I'm at, what I would like, and get feedback about. So I might say, I wanna be a CPA, and this GPS would say, to do that, where you are now is gonna take N years, you're gonna have to pass a licensing test. And I might say, okay, maybe I don't wanna do that, but they could come back and say, you could start being a bookkeeper, and you could become an accountant. And, oh, by the way, here are all the jobs within 50 miles of where you live than in these areas. And, oh, by the way, here's the high pay, the low pay, and the median pay. So, and you could, I mean, I fantasize place is going to become more important in some regards, less in others. But notion of a new function for public libraries in this country is to be community centers for the GPS for learning and work. That's a place I can go anytime. Ultimately it ought to be available on my computer as well. But to me, it is a way more, what we gotta get used to, I think, is that we are so heavily branded around campuses and degrees, and I think once we start recognizing all learning and trying to understand and validate its value, we're gonna find out that uh, there are a lot of other pathways and results that are incredibly valuable that we have been ignoring. It won't weaken or invalidate the degree, but it will give it partnership. There'll be other partner recognitions that will really worry some people in colleges and universities. They're going to not be happy with that. But you know what?
0: Um, Get ready, because it's coming. And they could be providing some of these things that they're not now, is that? (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, But it's a little
1: bit, you know, Clayton Christensen talked about what's the job you're trying to get done. And the fact of the matter is that organizational culture is almost always based, among other things, on an economic model and a set of economic assumptions. And there are other things that make culture strong or weak or nasty or positive. But when you, higher education is going to have... Uh, in most cases, uh, vary. I think it, 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 the changes that will come, you'll see dramatic change in a minority of institutions. I think you'll see some institutions go out. We're already seeing them go out of business or merge. And frankly, the top 200, 500, you know, the name, you know, the, the name brand Ivy Leagues and the Stanfords and the, uh, the the major land grants in every in every state. Um, they're uh, they're going to get rich people to give them money. They're going to be able to keep their tuitions down. I mean, I don't think they're going to be under half the pressure that the next 1,000 institutions are going to be under. But it's going to be adapt or um, be compromised and or possibly go out of business. I think that those uh, this is unforgiving. It isn't politics. Uh, it's it isn't deciding what you choose it's having a market where you know do i really want to spend i'm making up the number fifty thousand dollars a year to go as an out-of-state student to a state land-grant university that's not the case yet but it will be if we don't figure out another way to do it what michael Crow is doing at asu is so important and what's interesting is it's still unique and he's been doing it for 10 years and it's still unique.
0: Uh, that's scary to me. Thanks so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we are out with a new episode on Tuesdays. If you like the show, we hope you will subscribe or give us a rating or review. And tell a friend about the Ed Surge Podcast, either on social media or if you happen to get to an in-person conference. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at JR Young. If you do want to send me feedback about this or other episodes, I'm at jeff at edsurge.com. The sounds you heard at the beginning of this episode, they were recorded by me at the Minnesota Sculpture Garden at the Walker Art Center. I just held up my cell phone at this sculpture called Wind Chime After Dream by Pierre Heige. And it's a series of wind chimes hanging from an actual tree that represent every note in a John Cage composition, but playing in whatever order the wind takes them. We'll be back next week with more about the future of learning. Thanks for listening.